Well, today we'll be finishing up our series through the life of David. The last uh, two weeks, including uh, today, uh, have been a sort of epilogue as we've been looking at uh, Solomon. And uh, I, I, there are some plans for the future. I would love to just do a rector's forum, or I guess in my case, a vicar's forum, uh, since we're a mission, uh, just taking you through the Old Testament and, and really being able to uh, deep dive uh, into the life of David in particular, uh, because you may have noticed uh, as we were going through the life of David, uh, we skipped quite a lot and didn't get to necessarily sit in the crock pot. We had to microwave some of it, but we got it done, and it was a blessing uh, to be able to uh, teach that to you. And I'm excited because coming up uh, for the next five weeks, uh, the epistle, so the the New Testament lessons are going to be going through the book of James, uh, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I probably spent more time in this book than any other book uh, in all of Holy Scripture. And the book of James is only five chapters. You can read it in one sitting. So I think that will give us a little bit more time to be able to marinate in the Scriptures and lots of heavy hitting and relevant stuff uh, in that epistle from the kinsmen of our Lord. But for today, wrapping it up, Solomon asked the question at the, at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem, also known as Solomon's temple. He asked the question, will God indeed dwell on the earth? The temple, which Solomon's father David had longed for, had longed for was now complete. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant which is referred to as the footstool of the Lord. It forms the place for his feet, his invisible throne, if you will. It's the, the manifest place of God's presence in the Old Testament. It's brought into the temple. It's brought into its resting place. A cloud, which a cloud is, or smoke is a manifestation of God's presence. A cloud fills the temple so the priest can't even see. God's glory fills the temple. So the answer to Solomon's question is yes. Because that's what a temple is. A temple is a dwelling place for deity. But Solomon's question, I think, also points towards prophetically towards Christ, that, that he's, he's in awe and, and he's realizing that because he's the wisest man that ever lived, uh, except the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who knows all things, that the infinite God is everywhere and that the temple is a signpost for a greater reality. Because this is what Solomon's temple did. And this is really what all temples do. Temples are miniature models of the creation, miniature models of the cosmos. Everything in the, the temple stands for something in the creation. And so what happened in the Old Testament is God filling the temple in Jerusalem with his presence making it the place of his dwelling. It's an advanced signpost of what God intended to do throughout the whole creation. It points towards God's purposes for 
the entire cosmos, namely the earth being full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. I've told you this many times before already in our short time together that the story of Genesis 1 and 2, if you want to understand Genesis, understand that it's a temple-building narrative. It is the story of God making for himself a temple, a dwelling place, namely heaven and earth. And to understand that, I think it's so important for our own souls to understand that God made this place to be in this place with us and us with him and he in us and us in him. And that's exactly what we see. If we, kinda, if we connect uh, Genesis with Revelation, so in Revelation we get, we get a vision of, of the end we get a vision of the eschaton. We get a vision of the age to come. And what is it that we see at the very end? We see the coming together of God's space, heaven, and man's space, earth. And that's another definition of a temple. A temple is a place where heaven and earth overlap. And what does God say in this, this wonderful scene at the, at the end of John's apocalypse? The word apocalypse means unveiling. It has nothing to do with zombies, okay? When heaven and earth come together, when heaven and earth are married, what does God declare? He says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is what I have intended all along, to dwell in your midst with you and in you. And this uniting of heaven and earth, this union of God with man, is accomplished, how? In and through Jesus Christ, through his person and his work, through his incarnation, that is, him becoming human, through his life and his death and his resurrection. So 1 Kings 8 Today's Old Testament lesson is all about the incarnation as the Ark of the Covenant containing the words of God, that is the Ten Commandments, and the jar of manna and the staff of Aaron as the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple, which again represented the whole world. It's a miniature model of the cosmos. As the Ark of the Covenant containing the words of God came into the temple, so did Mary, the new Ark of the Covenant, carry in her womb and bring into the world the Word made flesh, the bread of heaven, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the mediator between God and man. So will God dwell on the earth? Yes! The word became flesh and dwelt among us, dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. Mary gave birth to God, the word who is called what? What's the other name of Jesus? Emmanuel, which means God with us. And again, he's not only with us, 
but in us, in us, in him. There is in and through Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is fully God, and Jesus Christ is fully human, there is a union of God and man. And this union, the union for which we were created, we're created in the image of God. We're the only creatures created in His image. This union for which we were created is actualized, it's deepened, and it's strengthened by the Holy Eucharist. From today's gospel, John 6.56, what does our Lord say? He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. The NRSV, which you have in front of you, translates it, abide. This, in John 6 and throughout John's gospel, is, is temple language. It's temple language. And what is the primary activity of a temple? What's the one thing that happens in every single temple, regardless of religion? Sacrifice. That's the primary activity. Activity And Solomon in 1 Kings 8, with the priest, when dedicating the temple, offered sacrifice. And when Jesus entered the temple of the cosmos, when he came into this world, he offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. He gave his flesh and blood for the life of the world so that our sins could be forgiven, so that our wounds could be healed, so that we could share in his life. Whoever eats me will live because of me. Live because of me. As you go through John 6, and John 6 was, was instrumental for me, many of you know this, of, of coming into the Anglican tradition. Because, because as I read, John 6, I'm like, if Jesus, if the Holy Eucharist, if it's everything that Jesus is saying it is, I want in on that. I want in on him. I don't want to miss out. But as it is today, uh, if you read in John 6, it was hard for many of Jesus' followers to accept his teaching. John chapter 6, verse 66. I thought it was interesting. This is, I'm not, it's, I think it's a total coincidence. But 666, and what's the verse about? It's people rejecting Jesus. So not a, not a, great, not a great sign there. Again, I think it's a coincidence. The, the verse divisions did not come. Those were added much later. Those were not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but I just thought it was kind of funny. What does it say? It says, when many of his disciples, these are small D disciples, these are not the 12. When, when they heard it, that is Jesus' teaching on the Holy Eucharist, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? 
and many of them stopped following Jesus. I just had a conversation with a, a small group I got invited to uh, of, these are not Anglicans or Catholics, um, just to speak and to answer some questions. And we'll talk about this in John 6. I think it's interesting that when Jesus gives this sermon, if you will, and people are like, man, what is this guy talking about? Cannibalism? You know, they don't get it. And they're like, we can't accept this. And they go, Jesus doesn't chase after them and say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I was speaking symbolically. He doesn't get on Facebook and, and make a post explaining himself. Well, guys, you guys took that the wrong way. Like so many people have to do today. What does he do? He turns to the 12 and he challenges them. And he says, you guys want to leave too? Do you also wish to go away? And I love Peter's response. And it should be the response of all of us because it recognizes that when we're coming in contact with the sacred, when we're talking about the mystery of, of Christ and his church and his, his workings in the world, we're talking about things beyond our understanding. Things that may not be compatible with a secular naturalist world. But guess what? It wasn't compatible with the ancient world either. And I love Peter's response. Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Outside of the, the sacramental dimension of this text, have you ever been frustrated with the Lord? Have you, un, have you ever wondered, why is this happening? God, I'm your son. God, I'm your daughter. Why am I having to go through this? Why are you treating me this way? probably experienced that. I have. And then Peter's words will just come ringing back into my soul. Where am I going to go? Jesus said he has the words of eternal life. I have to follow him and I have to trust him. And he will dwell with me and in me and I in him anchor myself in his promises and in his presence. He has the words of eternal life. In Jesus is life. Eternal life. Which, by the way, is not so much concerned with duration. Eternal. Forever. Or quantity. But with quality. Eternal life is the life that comes from the eternal one. It's the life of the age to come. Eternal life doesn't just mean existing forever. Well, we, we have immortal souls. Even the damned are going to exist forever. No, it's a sharing in the life of God. It's dwelling with and in him and he and us. And this eternal life is, is not just something we experience after death. 
even though we won't participate in the fullness of eternal life until we are made perfect at the last day. But nevertheless, eternal life is to start now. If eternal life is to know Jesus and to be united with him and to be in fellowship with him, then eternal life starts now. And it does start by virtue of our union with Christ in baptism. And it can be strengthened and deepened and actualized through our sharing of his life in the Holy Eucharist. So brothers and sisters, let us, let us marvel with Solomon that God would deign, that he would condescend to dwell in our midst, that, that Christ entered the temple of this world and offered himself on the altar of the cross so that we could be forgiven and so that we could have eternal life in him. And let us give thanks that he offers, this, offers us this life and that he offers us this life now. And that he gives us his very body and blood so that he may dwell in us and us in him. Amen.